Engel. The Undecideds, or how certain drug lords influenced the new pop culture. We're in the 1980s. Hip-hop is starting to emerge. Cocaine is already everywhere. And soon, crack will be making a dramatic entrance in the ghetto. This unprecedented consumption will allow some dealers to become the kings of the streets and represents the new role models for their community. The Undecideds is going to tell you the journey that eight of these men went through, the harsh and brutal truth. These are the tales of millionaire drug dealers who have a direct impact on the phenomenal success of hip-hop. Think of Dr. Dre, Tupac, Jay-Z, Lil Wayne, and so many others. Would they have become such pop culture icons if certain paths were never crossed? Without passing judgment, without glorifying it, the Undecideds will guide you through the troubled backstage of hip-hop to its rise onto the worldly stage. So if you don't know, now you'll know. Episode 8, Alberto Alpo Martinez. Washington, D.C., 1991. A young New Yorker admits to murdering 14 people. One of them is his best friend and partner. For him, it wasn't personal. It was just business. Once known as the mayor of Harlem, inspiring artists like Jay-Z and 50 Cent, his name lives in infamy as the ultimate symbol of portrayal. This is the story of Alberto Garis Martinez, a.k.a. Alpo. Alberto was born on June 8, 1966. He grew up in East Harlem, a.k.a. Spanish Harlem, a true New Yorican of El Barrio. It's a well-known hub for Puerto Rican expats. Most families living there today have parents and grandparents coming from the island to New York during the 50s and 60s. The neighborhood was an up-and-coming place to live back then, but a financial crisis struck the city during the 1970s when major cities, including New York, stopped getting federal funding. Soon, predominantly black and Latin neighborhoods like Harlem and the Bronx collapsed, completely overwhelmed by drug issues and crime. They became some of the worst places to live in New York during the 70s. Local government would abandon them as well, focusing on funding whiter neighborhoods and tourist-friendly parts of the city. Soon, neighborhood watch-style organizations popped up around Harlem to take care of their people. One of them was the Young Lords, a far-left group of Puerto Rican political activists modeled after the Black Panthers, whom they were close to. The New York financial crisis would create some legendary activists and musicians, like Tupac Shakur, a Harlem native before becoming the California icon we know. His childhood, however, could have been like that of young Alberto Martinez. Alberto lived in Albadio with his mother and two siblings. His older brother Flacco had major psychiatric problems. Alberto was a likable young boy, easygoing with a broad smile and a kind nature everyone loved. But that made him an easy target on the hard streets of Harlem. Alberto's mother was protective of him, breaking up fights Alberto got caught in because he was getting pushed around by the kids on his block. His mother had put all her hopes into Alberto. To keep him off the streets, his mother enrolled him in the Fresh Air Fund, a summer camp for young people from disadvantaged neighborhoods. Every summer, Alberto would go live with the Clintons, a quiet middle-class couple who treated him like a member of their family. At the Clintons' house, he discovered another way of living, the good life of middle-class America, where houses were as tall as four-story buildings 
and backyards were the size of playgrounds. For a young man from Spanish Harlem, this was a life Alberto could get used to, and he wanted that life, whatever it took. And he planned on making it happen by joining the military as a Marine when he turned 18. But he'd never get the chance. Holidays don't last forever. From the nice houses in the suburbs, Alberto came back home to the grimy streets of Harlem for the school year. Alberto was sick of getting jumped by kids on the street, so he learned to defend himself. After school, Alberto started boxing. He trained with a friend from the neighborhood, Wilfred the Radar Benitez, one of the best Puerto Rican boxers of all time. A pro by the time he was 17, Benitez would go on to win three world titles during his career. Alberto was quite a good fighter, but he never won his battles against poverty. Boxing lessons cost more than Alberto could afford. He was tired of running to his mother for everything, both physically and financially. Alberto dropped boxing, dropped out of school, and started learning his lessons from the street. It was an unfortunate turning point for him. He was so good, he could have turned pro as a teen like Wilfred. Far from the ring, Alberto started his career in petty crime with his friends Meech, Keith, and Mario. They started making their first few dollars at snatch-and-grab thieves. Their technique was impressive. The boys would throw bins full of junk from an overpass into oncoming traffic below. The cars would stop, and they used a gridlock to walk between cars and snatch everything in the back seat, like briefcases, bags, and watches. Then, they'd run off through the labyrinth of alleys in Harlem. The boys were impossible to catch. But snatching grabs weren't enough for Alberto. Alpo, as his friends started to call him, looked for new ways to make quick cash. Soon enough, the opportunity came. Alpo and the boys knew about the people who stood on street corners for days making big money. The drug dealers. There was so much black market demand for drugs in Harlem at that point that it wasn't hard to get some to sell themselves. All dealers needed some hands to pass the product around. So the boys went for it and got their first jobs as a reseller for a veteran named Petaway. At 13 years old, Alpo was part of the drug trade. Alpo got street smart real quick. He learned the codes, the language, and the tricks to make an extra buck or two. But above all, he was forging a well of steel. Alpo didn't drink or do drugs himself. He was always the first on the corners before anyone else. 5 a.m., rain or snow, burning up in the summer sun, or freezing to death in the bitter winter. Alpo was determined. His bosses noticed this quickly, realizing he'd be their biggest asset as a dealer. Eventually, Alpo met another ambitious young dealer from East Harlem named Randy Love. Randy was a little older than Alpo and lived in a neighborhood close to Spanish Harlem. Alpo and Randy were both strong-willed, shared the same taste for easy money, and were absolutely fearless. Money was just starting to flow for Alpo, but he spent it just as fast as he made it. Puma tracksuits, new pairs of Adidas, gold jewelry. If there was one thing that Alpo liked, it was bling flashy clothes and getting noticed on the streets of East Harlem. Randy was a tough guy, a brawler, and was the best at beating the crap out of people. No one in Harlem wanted to mess with Randy. His vicious reputation preceded him. 
being around Randy would toughen up Alpo. They did their first job together when Randy introduced Alpo to the Dominican, a big cocaine pusher in Harlem's west side. Alpo had heard of him before. The Dominican street cred was well known across Harlem, so Alpo took the job. It was simple. Get some of the dealer's customers to pay up old debts, whatever that took. Randy was in his element. Beating up the debtors burned some bridges. It wasn't long before Randy got caught. With Randy's long rap sheet and some pending murder cases, it was no surprise when he got a life sentence. After Randy landed in prison, Alpo teamed up with the Dominican on his own, who would use him in a rather new way. Alpo is Afro-Latino. The Dominican decided to send him incognito to spy on other Puerto Rican dealers. Over there, no one paid attention to Alpo. They just thought he was another black guy from the hood. So they did their deals in Spanish to keep business private. Little did they know, Alpo didn't miss a word they said. He'd go back to the Dominican and tell him everything he'd heard. Where the merchandise was, where they kept the money, and how many people were on watch. With this ace up their sleeve, they would rob the Puerto Ricans and hijack drugs and money regularly. In 1984, hanging out more and more in West Harlem, Alpo heard about a duo of young dealers as ambitious as he was, Rich Porter and L.A. Alpo decided it was time to find some new business partners. Rolling up in his BMW 318, Alpo introduced himself to the pair. Despite his age, all of Harlem knew who Alpo was, so it was no surprise to Rich in L.A. when he came calling. They all loved the same three things, money, cars, and clothes. But besides that, their mutual interest on expanding their territories is what got them talking the same language. Quickly, the three struck up a deal. Soon enough, the trio became the drug kings of Harlem. The three had a flair for attention. Rich had his flashy track suits. L.A. lived it up in Harlem nightlife. And Alpo had a habit of speeding down New York City streets on big, noisy bikes with even bigger wheels. It was his trademark. Cops would try and fail to catch him zooming by on Broadway. The last thing any of them were was discreet. Addicted to adrenaline and fame, Alpo kept making his mark on the New York drug scene. But that carefree way of life would come crashing down soon enough. One day, while dealing on one of his regular corners in East Harlem, Alpo found out L.A. had been killed at a shootout in front of the rooftop, one of his main haunts in town. Weeks later, Rich Porter would get busted for weapons possession charges. He'd spend the next year in prison at Rikers Island. It was a serious blow to his business and their partnerships. Just a few months before the end of his prison sentence, Rich Porter would introduce Alpo to A.Z. Faison, another Harlem dealer who made a name for himself with brand name Crack. A.Z. was known for the quality of his product. He'd end up becoming Alpo's new supplier. Alpo regularly visit A.Z., who taught him the trade secret that made him rich, the dime bag. A.Z. would sell small amounts of cocaine and crack for a fixed price, just $10 a baggie. Low prices and good dope kept the druggies coming back week after week. The margins were incredible, but the process took a while. 
large kilos had to be broken down and divided into individual portions. It took even longer to dime it up. To see just how serious Alpo was about doing business with him, AZ told Alpo he had to cut, pack, and sell some kilos for himself. Determined, Alpo agreed. He ended up prepping hundreds of dime bags in a few days. It took him even less time to sell it all. Convinced, AZ offered him a job. He owned a spot named the Jukebox on 145th Street. The place brought in a lot of money, but was a regular target for robberies. AZ was more brains than brawn, so he offered the spot to Alpo to add to his territory. Alpo couldn't say no. It was a golden opportunity. The jukebox turned out to be a real cash cow. Druggies would be lining up at the jukebox's front door like McDonald's. Within six months, Alpo was breaking records. Alpo raked in so much cash, he offered AZ one of his cash counting machines. Without it, it could take days to count all the money they had made together. Alpo and AZ made a mint together, but in August 1987, after a robbery at his stash house, AZ almost got murdered and landed in a hospital. After a robbery gone wrong, three people died and another three ended up in critical condition. AZ was shot nine times and had to go in for emergency surgery. But after months of recovery, AZ pulled through. This was a wake-up call for him. AZ decided to get out of the game. He warned Alpo to get out while he could, too. They had too many enemies over the years, and old beef was catching up to them. But Alpo had no plans to quit anytime soon. Soon enough, Rich Porter would be out of jail and he made plans to deal with his old business partner again. Once again, success came quick for Alpo. His muscle and Rich's connection had them running the streets for blocks on end. Nothing could stop this new duo in their reign over the city, from Sugar Hill to East Harlem. By the end of the 80s, Alpo's crew would sell between four and five kilos of cocaine a day. The team sold both retail and semi-wholesale of their best two products, cocaine and the very profitable up-and-coming drug, crack. Their quality product brought customers in from places near and far, from the Bronx all the way to Brooklyn. Alpo and Rich had made millions by the time they were 20 years old. Of course, Alpo needed people to know he was rolling in dough. People would often see him dealing at the rooftop club with his new Porsche or riding around New York in a beach buggy he bought while on vacation from Virginia Beach. He spent his cash like he was throwing it away. One year, Alpo bought about $15,000 worth of fireworks for a 4th of July party just to show off. He'd ride around town with loud music blasting out of the windows in any one of his $50,000 cars that he paid cash for. Of course he had motorcycles too, riding around the streets of Harlem, outrunning the cops when he felt like it. Alpo had become a symbol of big city biking culture. So much so that the Rough Riders founder Wink said in interviews that Alpo would be an inspiration for them and other bikers across New York. Alpo's bike culture made it into the rap game as well, showing up in music videos of major artists. Biking would become a lifestyle all around the world, from Baltimore to the suburbs of Paris. Alpo made a name for himself by being different. 
and he wanted to stand out from other kingpins too. DJs were the stars of the music game at that point, and Alpo wanted club DJs repping his name. While rap was an up-and-coming genre, Alpo had DJs making cassettes with a shout-out. If everybody in Harlem didn't know Alpo from a street cred, they knew who he was because his name would come up after every song in the clubs. It was the birth of the mixtape. Seeing what it could bring, DJs started embracing this new musical format. The mixtape culture was growing. They were the hottest things on the street. DJs like Rooftop's Brucey B had already made some for other dealers at the time, but nobody paid big money for shoutouts like Alpo. He dropped as much as $400 on a single mixtape to prove a point. One day, Alpo noticed the B-Boy look had gone mainstream. While it had become part of his trademark, Alpo wanted to make sure he still stood out in the crowd. No more Pumas and Adidas. He was on a hunt for a new wardrobe. Alpo found his new look at a small shop on 125th Street, Dapper Dance, a boutique run by a black man of the same name. What made him the new hot couture? Turning streetwear into high fashion. Gucci, Fendi, Louis Vuitton, all brands that were picky about what neighborhoods they got worn in. Dapper Dan would bridge the gap between these designers and the future of rap fashion. But it didn't start out that way. Dapper Dan made what he liked to call knockups of these brands on anything from suits to bags to car seats. But this flashy one-of-a-kind fashion was exactly what Alpo needed. Alpo practically raided the store, buying everything from what was on the shelves to the mannequins. His most prized piece of clothing, a Louis Vuitton Parker that stopped people on the street dead in their tracks when he walked by. Soon, other A-list Hollywood stars like Mike Tyson would shop at Dapper Dan. If you look, you'll find his designs on the album covers of Eric B and Rakim, Run DMC, and LL Cool J, and plenty of other stars. Even today, big names wear Dapper Dan's clothing like Floyd Money Mayweather, who asked Dapper Dan to make a pair of boxing shorts for his 2014 fight against Marcos Maidana. Rapper French Montana would copy Alpo's Louis Vuitton Parker in his collab with The Weeknd for a lie. The music video has over 25 million views on YouTube today. With a war chest of money at his feet, Alpo used his newfound wardrobe to become the number one influencer of Gangsta Chic. Young artists saw the charismatic Alpo as a ghetto superstar. At the end of the 1980s, Drugs spread like a virus across New York. Coke, crack, heroin could be found anywhere and everywhere. The city was practically a black market pharmacy with all the drugs coming in and out. Alpo felt that the market was too saturated. Like any good businessman, he sought to expand and build his empire. At the time, Alpo was dating a woman named Karen. He met her during a stay in Virginia Beach but she was from Washington, D.C. While taking trips back and forth to see her, he realized the U.S. Capitol could be a good place to put down some roots. Alpo and Karen met some well-known connections from New York that can get them into the market down south. For Alpo, it was obvious there was money to be made. Washington, D.C. would become his new conquest. But he didn't want to set foot anywhere in a city. At the time, D.C. was one of the most dangerous cities in the U.S., 
and it was all because of a kingpin named Rafael Edmund III. Authorities estimate that about 70% of the drug deals in the city went through him. Plus, everyone in town was using his drugs, including one of D.C.'s most illustrious citizens, Mayor Marion Barry, who got caught smoking crack cocaine in a hotel bathroom during a police sting in 1990. Marion Barry tonight delegated many of his duties as mayor of the nation's capital, but did not resign. Word of this came hours after the D.C. mayor was brought before a federal magistrate on misdemeanor drug charges, buying and using crack cocaine. Karen played the middleman and introduced Alpo to a few Washington bosses. Alpo had better quality merchandise and unbeatable wholesale prices to offer them. Some of them gave Alpo a chance, so he started supplying some of his new contacts in D.C. For him, it was simple. He would only sell kilos, minimal of one for purchase, and they go for 10 grand each. On a supply side, Alpo was still doing business with Rich Porter, but their relationship had been strained since L.A.'s death. Alpo knew he needed more reliable business partners for his southern outlet. Just like he did with Randy Love, Rich Porter, and L.A., Alpo started getting close to a certain Wayne Perry. Wayne was not a dealer. Nah, he was a killer. Uh, Wayne Perry was uh, one of our most prolific killers in, in D.C. during the time when, when the, uh, the violence in D.C. had just gotten completely out of control. His reputation was enough to make any person in D.C. shake in their shoes. I mean, this guy, Wayne Perry, was considered the Michael Jordan of the murder game. Alpo decided to help Wayne Perry, fresh out of prison at that point, by giving him a signing bonus to join his crew. With Wayne on his side, Alpo knew he was sending a very clear message to the criminals in D.C. The odds tipped in their favor when Rayful Edmund III was arrested in April 1989. He was sentenced to life in prison at just 24 years old. According to the authorities, his organization had generated up to $300 million during his reign on the streets of D.C. Before he went to prison, Rayful Edmund III, the biggest drug dealer in the history of Washington, D.C., sold some $300 million a year worth of cocaine and crack. Rayful's departure left a void, and Alpo had every intention of filling it. But he wasn't the only one. Michael Salters, a.k.a. Michael Frey, was also ready to do anything to take over. A D.C. big-shot godfather himself was respected in the crime world. He was one of the few who could negotiate peace treaties between rival gangs in and around the Beltway. But this time, Frey was on a warpath there would be no peace between him and Alpo. Frey didn't like the idea of these New York hotshots thinking they could just come in and call his city their turf. Alpo knew he would be fighting an uphill battle, so he decided to make the first move. On July 16, 1991, Michael Frey was shot dead by a member of his own crew. Alpo had bought him for nine grand and a half a kilo of cocaine. With Frey out of the way, Alpo called the shots in the district. Over time, he started supplying all of Rayful's old customers. Nothing could stop him, not even newcomers. They'd get shot as soon as Alpo caught wind of them. 
for the flashy East Harlem dealer, murders were now part of his business plan. Alpo was doing well down south, so well that the Dominican and Rich Porter's supply weren't enough to keep up with demand. Rich told Alpo he could get some more kilos from another supplier for more money. Alpo took the deal, but told Rich to get the goods together for him since he couldn't leave D.C. While Rich was off making that deal, Alpo made a shocking discovery. Rich had been ripping him off, big time. One day, while going over some business deals, the Dominican mentioned how he just ordered 60 kilos of coke from Rich. Surprised, Alpo tells the Dominican that couldn't be right. Rich had run out of coke and needed to get him some from a different supplier. But the Dominican had proof to back up his claim. The kilos he got came packaged like round loaves of bread with pictures of Ronald Reagan on top. A little while later, Alpo gets his 30-kilo order from Rich's so-called supplier. They came in the same packaging. There was no doubt about it. Rich had given the Dominican that Coke. Rich had been selling Alpo the same Coke all along at a $3,000 markup per kilo. Alpo got duped like a newbie. Betrayed, Alpo called up Rich for an explanation. The conversation didn't go well. After some lousy answers and some back and forth, Alpo realized his oldest friend in the business wasn't loyal. Alpo was done with Rich, but his anger would lead to decisions with extreme consequences. On January 28, 1990, Rich Porter's body was found in Orchard Beach, a few miles northeast of New York. Rich had been murdered, shot in the head, and riddled with bullet holes. That week, Karen called Alpo to tell him the news, shocked at what had happened. Alpo already knew. He acted surprised anyway. The police had no leads, clues, or immediate motives to explain Rich's murder. Sure, Rich had enemies, but which ones had it out for him so bad they put a cap in his head? Whether it was fate or not, they got their answer. Not long after Rich's death, Alpo came up to New York. While he was there, he ran into his old crime buddy, AZ, at a local restaurant. After catching up, Alpo asked AZ if Rich's family or anyone else thought he might be behind the murder. AZ, of course, didn't have an answer to that. Nobody had said anything to him, so he wasn't sure what they thought. Alpo then went on to ask AZ, would they still think I was guilty if I gave them cash? AZ didn't respond. Right then and there, he knew Alpo killed Rich. Whether he realized it or not, Alpo had given himself up. AZ quickly said goodbye and jumped in his car. That was the last time AZ ever spoke to Alpo. A ruined friendship was the last thing Alpo cared about. He had other issues. Back in D.C., Alpo was a dead man walking. Local dealers wanted in on his territory and were looking to take him down or jump him for cash. One night, while out with an old friend on the streets of D.C., a gang came up behind them and tried to kidnap Alpo. It was a setup. Alpo had just enough time to run, but as he was getting away, one of the kidnappers pulled out a gun and shot him in the back. He went down hard. A few blocks away, 
two cops running a stakeout for Mayor Barry's investigation heard the shots. The unit arrived on the scene and called for backup in an ambulance. At the hospital, Alpo was immediately questioned by authorities. They had serious doubts about his alibi. Alpo knew he wouldn't leave that hospital as a free man if he stayed. Wounded and bleeding, Alpo snuck out under the cover of night. Instantly, he had become public enemy number one in D.C. Wanted on all fronts, Alpo was very cautious. And yet, he was still hanging out in tourist spots like the White House. But as the saying goes, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. On November 6, 1991, as he was getting into a friend's car, Alpo gets stopped by a cop. And not just any cop. It was the same one that questioned him at the hospital. The two recognized each other, and Alpo hopped in the car and tried to start it. But he wasn't fast enough. The cops caught up to him, and Alpo was arrested. At only 25, Alpo knew the game was over for him. But at 25, Alpo was already a legend. At the police station, he was shown around like a hunting trophy. The police officer who arrested him even received a prize, a can of Alpo brand dog food. Alpo Martinez was charged with cocaine trafficking in an organized gang. His file, made up of clues found between New York and D.C., was the size of an encyclopedia. After seeing it, Alpo's lawyers didn't stand a chance. He knew his client was either getting a death penalty or a life sentence. Alpo knew it too. It was only a matter of time before all the murders he committed got traced back to him, including Rich Porter's. Alpo decided with his lawyer to make the first move and enter a plea deal. He gave up everything he knew. The murders, the drug runs to and from New York and D.C., the identities of other dealers locked up and walking free. Alpo let it all hang out to dry. The judge agreed knowing authorities would be able to open dozens of cold cases with Alpo's intel. they take down kingpins left and right. What did any of them have to lose? Authorities questioned Alpo for a full week. They were surprised by just how much info he had. Alpo ended up confessing to 14 murders. Among them, Rich Porter, Michael Frey, and Demencio Benson, another Brooklyn boss he put a hit on. Benson was killed at a basketball court in the middle of the afternoon. He also ratted on Wayne Perry, who happened to be in jail for a whole different case. He'd later get five life sentences after Alpo's testimony. All in all, between 15 and 20 other dealers would land in prison, thanks to Alpo. More importantly, he avoided the death penalty and only got a 35-year prison sentence. He would change prisons several times, from D.C. to Virginia, finally landing in the super-maximum security prison ADX Florence in Fremont County, Colorado, the same place where Wayne Perry was served part of his life sentence. Nineteen ninety-one would be a pivotal year for another Washington celebrity. Marion Barry finished his third mayoral term in jail following his crack cocaine scandal. Six months later, Barry was released and ran for a council seat in D.C.'s 8th Ward. He ran under the slogan, He may not be perfect, but he's perfect for D.C. 
and won the general election easily. Barry's council seat win would lay down the groundwork for his fourth successful election as D.C. mayor in 1994. D.C. had a way of shaping up some surprising legacies. Alpo Martinez was just one of them. From a sweet, mild-mannered kid to a cold-blooded killer with his flashy ways and dangerous antics, Alpo fascinated people as much as he put them off. He'd become an idol for street kids growing up in New York and D.C. and a notorious snitch and murderer. A snitch is the worst kind of thing you could be growing up in the hood. You're lower than vermin and deserve no respect. A pariah in a world full of people no one wanted to be around to begin with. But I know the thing is, did I, did I kill, did I kill Rich? And uh, yes, yes I killed Rich. Why did I kill him? It wasn't personal. It was business. And yet, the street knew that there are just some things you gotta do to stay free. Sometimes you gotta rat on other criminals to stay above water. Most thought Alpo would rot in jail and die there. But in 2015, pictures of Alpo with one of his sons in New York started popping up on the internet. There was no doubt Alpo was a free man again. At 49 years old, Alpo Martinez had been released under the Witness Protection Program. He's living under a new identity now, but to the rest of the world, he'll always be a snitch. Where is he now? Who knows? Somewhere most likely far from Harlem, or maybe not. Recent videos from January 2018 show a man thought to be Alpo leaving a bodega in New York. Who's to say? Even if that was Alpo leaving a store, he probably doesn't recognize the neighborhood anymore. Harlem has come a long way from the 80s, and gentrification is changing the landscapes of his old hood from Spanish Harlem to Sugar Hill. One thing that hasn't changed is Dapper Dan. 25 years later, he's still making gangster chic suits for the rich and famous. After countless raids and cease and desist orders from Hawk Couture legal teams, Dapper Dan would have to shut down his 125th Street store. But eventually, Dapper Dan will become the face of Gucci. Today, he works out of his new boutique supplied with materials from Gucci to make original pieces for them. And yet, Alpo's legend and the legends of other 80s dope boys like AZ and Rich Porter live on. The tainted success of these flashy self-made stars have been magnified for over 20 years by rappers like Jay-Z, Nas, and 50 Cent. New generations carry their stories into the 2000s with stars like ASAP Rocky. Their legacies that have no intention of dying off anytime soon. Find the playlist related to the episodes on all the streaming platforms and on theundersiders.com. The Undersiders is produced by Angle and created by Francois Cousset. Sound production by V in Paris, France. Original scores by Max Eppel. English version narrated by Ellis Park and recorded at Lotus Productions in New York City. Find more episodes of The Undersiders anywhere you find podcasts and on theundersiders.com.